0: Welcome to Mission Impact, the podcast for progressive nonprofit leaders who want to build a better world without becoming a martyr to the cause. I'm Carol Hamilton, your host and nonprofit consultant. My guest today is Wendy Wolf. Wendy brings nearly 25 years of diverse consulting experience to her role as Director of Consulting and Strategic Engagements for Maryland Nonprofits. You can find her full bio in the show notes. Wendy and I talk about why leading a nonprofit is certainly different and sometimes more challenging than running a for-profit organization. We also focus in on evaluation, especially program evaluation. We discuss why people are often afraid of evaluation, the different types of evaluation and some resources to help you get started. I was struck in our conversation by Wendy's comments about how when people shift from leadership in the for-profit to the nonprofit sector, the differing role of a board of directors can catch them by surprise. And they may find having to manage multiple constituent needs and perspectives challenging. And as we delved into evaluation, I appreciated Wendy's comment about deciding what level of evaluation you're trying to achieve. Without a large investment, you're unlikely to be able to prove the impact of your program, But just because you cannot prove it doesn't mean it's not worth trying to demonstrate your impact and outcomes. So welcome, Wendy. It's great to have you on the Mission Impact Podcast.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Carol. It's lovely to be
0: here. So just to get us started, what drew you to the work that you do? What what really motivates you and what would you describe or how would you describe your why?
1: That's a great question. And I want to say that my why started a long time ago, to over 25 years ago, so I, I will share why that happened. But one of the things that I love about the work that I do and what jazzes me all the time is that um, it's a very lonely job sometimes being the leader of a nonprofit There are a lot of rules, and we have this notion in society that it's easier to run a nonprofit than it is to run a for-profit, and I've done both, and I would disagree greatly. I would say that running a nonprofit takes a tremendous amount of skill and finesse, And that it's a very lonely position to be at the top because there's a board element and who are are your chief volunteers and hurting them and motivating them and getting them involved, yet not having anybody overstep their bounds is a real dance. And being sustainable, I guess, is, is how I want to say that. So I think that's a really big challenge. And I find that sometimes we refer to ourselves internally at Maryland nonprofits, sometimes as job is to validate do a lot of validating the instincts of of executives and supporting the the great work that people do. And if they had enough time and enough freedom in their calendars and enough space for strategic thinking, they wouldn't even need us. But we provide that um, clarity and that moment of taking a break to think about things in a different way. So that's that's what I love. But I really want to say how I started my why, how I got my why was I was at a local health department in Colorado and I was asked, this was in 1993, and I was asked to sit on a brand new Centers for Disease Control and Prevention group, every state was told that you will not get another dime of funding if you don't create community engagement groups, community mobilization groups, to help decision makers identify the priorities for um, AIDS dollars. And actually at the time, we didn't even really know about HIV that much. Anyway, long story short, I was nominated to sit on this committee and I was so frustrated. We just went round and round and round and round. And it was one of my first professional jobs. It was early on in my career. And I'll never forget it, but the meeting was being facilitated by the National Civic League. I was like a kid in a candy store. I didn't even know what I was involved in. I just thought it was outstanding. And that this exists, it was amazing. There's a facilitation team and people are coming all together to make decisions together, but we weren't being successful. So somehow I got myself on the steering committee where everybody was supposed to check a committee and I'm in this room month after month after month, like getting nothing done. And so finally, this exact thing happened. I pick up a marker and I jump up and I go, oh my God, who, what, where, when, how? And I just write it on the whiteboard. I'll never forget it. And we got stuff done facilitator comes up to me at the end. He goes, do you facilitate meetings? And I was like, what's that? It felt so right. And so good. And, and that's really how I got my start. And after that, I started working with the Colorado department of public health and environment a little bit more through this process, and then became a nonprofit executive. We start. I founded a nonprofit to work with intravenous drug users. Cause at the time the rates were skyrocketing and we didn't have needle exchange and all those things. So that was what really jazzed me, which was somebody has to be the glue to all the genius in the room. And I love that role. I love to listen intently and to thread the story so that everybody can hear it clearly. And we all same information so that we can act accordingly and together. So that's what I love. That's my why.
0: Yeah, no, there's so many things that I want to follow up on uh, from that. And I think one of them is your comment at the very beginning where you said, you know, so often there's kind of this assumption that working in the nonprofit sector is easier, running a nonprofit is easier than a for-profit organization. You know, I've read so many articles about people who they come to the end of their career and they're like, I want to dial back and I'm going to go, you know, work at a nonprofit. And, 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 or nonprofits are always, always being told well, will be more, more businesslike. So I'd love for you to say a little bit more about what is it that you believe, or, or in your experience, um, really makes it harder to run a nonprofit than a for-profit organization.
1: Yeah, and and maybe harder is not the right word. It's it's that it's it, they're 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 just different to me. They're different organisms. Nonprofits have significant cultural rules. They have processes that they follow, and I also I have been, I've had several clients over the last like seven years at Maryland nonprofits where they hired a for-profit executive to come in and be the new chief executive officer only to be really dissatisfied that all of a sudden the board, the, because, so here's the bottom line in the for-profit world, we don't have to answer to our board of directors in the same way. And for somebody who has run their own business or their own or someone else's business or led an, a for-profit, they are used to making decisions. And, and there is a, a, a considerable amount of, excuse me, a considerable amount of decision making that an executive director does that doesn't need the oversight of their board. But when they do, that's when a lot of problems and it's already a difficult relationship, not difficult, but unique relationship because there has to be attention given to the relationship between the executive director and the board chair. That is not a passive relationship. That is an active relationship. That is two people coming together to decide where are we heading? And they do this, what every two years, right? So they get somewhere. And, and when you bring in a for-profit person, they don't understand that always. So you get the Lone Ranger sort of aspect, which is, wait, why do I have to answer to you? But in fact, you do. So that's, that's one element that I think is weird. And, and then the other thing is that I think we don't relying on sales or product movement for a for profit to me seems a little easier. You have an unlimited, potentially unlimited revenue source, right? It just means that you have to be a little bit more creative. You have to narrow down who who your folks are that you're that you're marketing to. In the nonprofit, you have to figure out really creative, unique ways to sustain salary for everyone on your, you know, operating expenses and admin. And we have we have these rules that you can't have administrative overhead costs, right? It's just, well you can, but you can't you can't always get funded for them. So it's just difficult and hard and not impossible but different. And I think it's just harder.
0: I think it is. It's so interesting, especially with everything that's going on right now in the country, in our democracy, that I think that the organizations that people spend a lot of their time in, whether they work for a for-profit organization or a nonprofit or the government sector, obviously is government, but in the for-profit there can be, and you know, many organizations try to have more of a flat or a bottom-up approach, but ultimately the decision-making and the you know buck stops here com- ends with the, with the CEO of, and the leader of the organization. And, and they can be very effective by being very top-down and very directive and very, in some ways, a- almost autocratic, right? And in a nonprofit, it's much more of that distributed democratic division of power, not exactly the same as the way our government's set up, but yeah, that key relationship between the executive director and the board chair, the, the executive director working for the board, the board, you know, being a collection of organ- of people who then have to act as a group, as one, and and the, you know, keeping that fresh in terms of new people, and, and, you know, so there's so many more constituencies, you're managing a lot of constituencies, and so often I've heard it referred to as, you know, herding cats, yes. uh, and I'm sure there's aspects of that in the for-profit sector as well, but I've uh, I've definitely seen folks who've who've done that switch and made that switch you know, say that, you know, they they were just even more challenged because there were so many stakeholders and constituencies that they had to think about. And then the fundraising side, as you talk about, it's not that direct, you know, customer to organization, you know, company relationship. Right. You end up having, a, again, kind of a triangle of, especially in cause-related nonprofits, Uh, typically, you know, a donor who, who, you know, who gives to the organization because they're motivated and for a variety of different reasons. But then the people who actually receive services are may be, you know, contributing a small amount may not be contributing anything or, you know, large funder, all all of that complication of, you know, that indirect relationship um, of how the money
1: flows. And and you just said it. I think it's not maybe the trick is that it's not harder. It's much more complicated. It's complicated to run a really streamlined, effective, prosperous, sustainable nonprofit is complicated. It is. And, and I don't know if it's complicated in the for-profit world in the same way.
0: Yeah. And and as you said, it's 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 really just that in a lot of ways there's so many things that are different. And, and yeah. the rules, the the structures the processes and the culture um yes. you know can be very very different and
1: this is not to say don't hire a for profit person to be your ceo this is not to say that but give them ample opportunity to understand the culture and the nuances of the nonprofit business cycle and and then and and the life cycle of a nonprofit all of that
0: right, right,
1: that, has to, right. that has to go with that
0: yeah yeah and, you know, you work uh, uh, across a range of, of different areas, some of them being strategic planning and evaluation. And that's another piece, I think, yeah. that, that's so, it, that in a way is kind of different in uh, the nonprofit sector, especially those, you know, working in with missions that have, you know, a long horizon, you're not going to see change over a long period of time, you may, you know, there may be a lot of different factors that go into being able to demonstrate outcomes, but yet that's so important. I'm curious, like, how you would, how would you define evaluation and, and kind of why it's important for nonprofits?
1: That's a great question. And the first thing I want to say about evaluation that I've, I've figured out over the last 30 years or so is that people are definitely afraid, not definitely, people are afraid of evaluation. Just that word. They're like, ah. And the truth is we evaluate all day long. I'm evaluating right now. Am I, you know, we evaluate, should I wear this? Should I wear that? Should I eat this? Should I eat that? Should I wear my seatbelt? Should I not wear my seatbelt? Should I drink water? How much water? So, the first thing about evaluation is that we do it all day long. That is how we get from moment to moment in this lifetime we we and and we we decide where we're headed and we figure out the degree to which we have succeeded so evaluation to me is and uh, this is such a sticky part because there's two pieces about evaluation: there is this whole notion of evidence based programming, and then there is this notion of what are you trying to accomplish and how close are you to accomplishing that? Or what is the, I always, I love this phrase and I use it a lot when I, when I work with people around evaluation, what we're trying to figure out is the degree to which something has been achieved. Has it been achieved fully? And what was that? And is there, th- are there things beyond once it's been achieved fully that will keep happening or has it been achieved um, slightly or middle of the road. So when we're evaluating the degree to which our programs are successful, we have to keep that in mind. It's not a did we do it or didn't we do it? It's how did it go and 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 what was accomplished and what, what and even more importantly, what wasn't accomplished. As also- Can you give
0: me an example of that one? Because I think in, in some ways, I think it's it's easy for people to kind of, I mean, w- the place that my brain went when you started describing in that way was almost like, you know, the the things, the kind of tactics in a strategic plan that are like, have we checked these things off? But I don't think that's really what you're talking about. So I'm wondering no. um, if you'd give me an example.
1: Sure, sure. And so, okay, so I'm going to try. I'm going to try because thinking on my feet, it's the end of the day. But but the first thing I do want to say is there there are four Oh dear, this is an evaluation class, isn't it? So there's there's <laughs> there's there's four pipes. We'll of try evaluation. to make
0: it not scary, right? Because yeah. I agree with you that people find they they're just like evaluation. Oh, it's a big E and a big V. What's that? You know? Yeah,
1: and 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 we have these things where we we use the di- different terms. Ter- same terms mean different things. So the there's formative evaluation. And that you execute when you are trying to determine if something will work. Informative evaluation, you are pilot testing, you are asking questions, you are talking to the community before you do anything to find out, is this right? Is this wrong? Is that, will it work? Won't it work? Here's a great example. Okay, and then, well, I'll, I'll get you the example in a second. Then you've got process evaluation, which is widget counting. How many brochures did we hand out? How many meetings did we did? How many people attended the meetings? When we do, then we have outcome and impact. Outcome evaluation is what happened and did that change anyone's life now? How has it changed someone's life now? And and an outcome evaluation to me, and first of all, there's also not one school of thought. Some people use different schools of thought and time frame, but to me, time frame is determines whether or not we use outcome evaluation or impact evaluation. Outcome tells me what occurred and how did that, how um, was that set up for, for people's lives to change? Did they change to what degree, what worked, what didn't work? And then impact evaluation is longer, longer down the path that says, okay, so what are the results? Did people change and was it lasting? That costs hundreds of thousands of dollars. Oftentimes though, people interchange, misuse the words impact and outcome. So just wanted to share that because even I think in my opinion, and I I know a lot about evaluation. I'm not an expert. I don't like to call myself an expert in anything, but I know quite, I, I like it and I know quite a bit about it. So a good example would be, let's say, um, we did a series of discussions in the community about um, quitting smoking, right? we back, let me see if that's the one I wanna use, hold on, oh, let's do nutrition, that's better, that's better. So we have, um, we're doing a series of discussions and it's been so long since I've been in person with people that I'm like, do we even do that anymore? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. All right. Let's pretend we're in person. We're doing community discussions. We invite the community in because we know that, um, that, that high blood pressure is, is running rampant in a certain community. And we invite people in to help them understand how to control it. Right. And so in the formative stage, we might ask five or six individuals from that community, what should be in our program? What would make this more meaningful? How could we get people to come So we do all that work, we create some networks and we actually get quite a bit of people. We've had 50 people come, it's amazing, right? To two sessions, 50 people to two sessions. Could we say that that was a success? Yes, only though it was a process success. It was not an outcome that 50 people came because we have no idea the degree to which they are gonna go home and make it change their lives. So maybe the class was about not using salt because we know that salt is really bad for high blood pressure. Well, the fact is that a lot goes into decision making. So the question is, will two classes with wildly attended, which is great—that's nothing to sneeze at—but could we say that those two classes will will have a direct result in people's lives being changed? I don't know. I don't think so. So. Pro programs need to use this. And this is why the logic model is so interesting. And now we're really geeking out, but
0: I was like, let's just get geeky on this. So yeah. So tell people what a logic model
1: is. I'm so sorry, but it's so great because the logic model is the roadmap, right? So it gives you an opportunity to go, where do we want to be? And then logically work backwards to what, from where we want to be, where we want the community to be, or our participants or the target population. And then we work backwards and ask ourselves, well, if we want to be there, does this make sense? Does this make sense? Does this make sense? Does this make sense? And so, and there's, at this point, actually in, in our evolution, there are, there is, and, and with the internet, there are so many, there are so many things that have already been evaluated that we could build on the successes of others without just developing new programs. So evaluation provides an opportunity for us to be thoughtful, think strategically, and make sure that things are lined up to get the best result possible for the community. And and logic is a great word because if it's not logical, if, if it doesn't fit, then you're not, you probably are not going to have strong outcome results. So that was a five minute, four hours in about five minutes.
0: Yeah. And I appreciate that because I think one of the things that actually having a group, um, build that, that logic model for themselves, um, and, and, you know, it sounds, it sounds kind of, geeky and cumbersome, but really it's, you know, let's, let's map out what our, what our thoughts and assumptions are. And by, by making it a visual and by going through the process, you know, you have a chance to dig into what those assumptions are. And, 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 and one of them that, you know, I've worked with a lot of organizations that work in the uh, conservation and environmental field. And oftentimes, you know, especially around their program, their work that's with, People, often citizen scientists or they're doing environmental education or other things like that, they, they can't measure that or, or demonstrate the impact of that in the same way that they can measuring you know, the pollutants in a in a river, let's say. Yeah. Um, but so often the vision is that a group of people by participating in their programs will become advocates for their local river, let's say. Um, and yet you know, when they think about what they're doing in their program, you know, their their goals are that that, that people will understand more about the river. And then you have to say, okay, well, where's the, it's kind of like, you know, the, the geometry teacher wanted you to show that you, their math and all your steps. How do you get the people from, they understand a little bit more about their river and they've gone to it and they've been on it to this leap of them being an advocate. Like, there's got to be some more ladder you know, so right. so sometimes it's, um, well, that's where we actually want to get, this is what we're doing over here. How do we help people or, you know, it's probably a subset of the people take those extra steps, yes. so move them closer to what we're hoping for, rather than just being kind of a hope.
1: Exactly. And that was a great illustration. You did the good example, which is, and and we have to be clear when we're writing proposals and talking to funders about what we're promising, because those advocates, no matter, let's, you know, they are fired up. Those folks who come to that first session, those environmental sessions, they could be fired up and super excited, but we have to take into consideration what it takes to get to from information to action and also the confounding factors that go into it. I could be absolutely jazzed. You could be the best person. I have come to both of your sessions. I walk away so excited. And then I go home and I've got three kids and I work full time and I'm exhausted and there's no time for myself and even though my intention is to become an advocate, there are other things surrounding me. So what are you so so what we have to do in program planning and evaluation starts before people walk in the door we have to think about what's the tra- trajectory of that person and how do we interact with them and is that an okay is that an okay result that i've come to two things we've checked the boxes that we've had 50 people at each session and that's wonderful cuz that tells us that people are being they're changing in their awareness but does it mean that they're taking action and that's a different thing and sometimes the change in action, it takes much, much longer. And and the last thing I want to say is the word assumption is amazing in the logic model, because along that we have, there are so many assumptions that we have to consider when working with communities. And we also have to look at, I love the theory of behavior change by Prochaska and Clemente, which says people go from pre-contemplation to contemplation, to action, to maintenance, and to relapse. I think it might be contemplation action maintenance relapse. And so they are, if if you are not in contemplation, I have to know where my community is coming into a program so that I can figure out if I can help them change behavior. If you don't even think that smoking's bad, nothing I'm gonna do is helping you. So we can't push people along, they naturally go through that process, but we have to. We have to recognize that when we plan programs. So,
0: well, and it was actually the smoking piece that made me think, you know, that, that just, just bringing people to awareness, just providing information, you know, has now been proven over time, doesn't, doesn't necessarily create, it can, for some people, they will be self-motivated and, and it will create action, but it,
1: one does not equal the other. And they have to match. And I always look back on, you know, we did a lot with smoking, right? I mean, we used to smoke in elevators, on the airplanes. So we did this huge social movement together, you know, drunk driving, wearing seatbelts. We've accomplished a lot as a community, but we still have the difficulty of helping individuals changing their behavior. So when we are writing our evaluation plans or designing programs, we need to really hone in on what's the change we're hoping to see and how does everything we do set a person up to eventually make that, you know, take that leap. They may not all take it. And and how do we know? So anyway, we could go on and on.
0: (laughs) Yeah. and, And what you also talked about kind of, which is an area that I feel like i want to learn more about is how does how does uh changing social norms actually play into this as well because uh, you know we're such social creatures and you know I, it was so interesting you talked about smoking because i was on a meeting a zoom meeting um today and a woman was smoking and i was like i was just so shocked um yeah and, shocked and, too um, that's wild. you know and, and Whatever, 40 years ago, that would have been totally normal. Every single person would have been. So yeah, yeah it it's, been. it's it's yeah. it's fascinating. Yeah. Um, so people think it's scary. They think you know, we just talked about some complicated things. We we used a bunch of different terms. Um, how how do, how do folks actually, what's a place to get started if an organization um, isn't doing evaluation yet, or maybe they're, they're doing evaluation, but it's more of the kind of, are you satisfied with whatever we offered, you know, today? Did you like the, the workshop kind of thing?
1: Yeah. Did they come and did they like it? And, and the thing is workshops. So we, and that's just we, one thing
0: that organizations do. Obviously, they do lots of they other do things. Lots
1: of things. And I, what I wanted to just say about that is, you know, there's a difference between the changes that people make and the intent to change. That that we cannot say when we do, you know, workshops that people are going to change. We can say that they that this demonstrates an intent to change. But anyway, how you would start is this. I teach a lot of evaluation classes, actually. And one of them, what I love, what I always go back to, and it's, I have my master's in public health. I love public health. And I think public health, we're witnessing it right now. But public health for years and years and years has been, for decades and decades, has been using terminology for evaluation and requiring programs to be evaluated. So I recommend that people utilize public health evaluation tools. Centers for Disease Control has excellent resources on evaluation. And to me, that is the most clear version of it. I would say any, you know, there are a lot of books on evaluation, grab one or go on it, but make sure that it's, you know, evaluation made easy. It doesn't have to be complicated. We are not talking about evidence-based evaluations that cost hundreds of thousands of dollars, we're talking about how do we build programs so that they're logical and that we can say, here's what we think will happen at the end of this. And then we have to backtrack and go, well, if we're, if we're saying this is going to happen, how will we know? Okay. We've got to talk to people. How will we talk to them? Will we call them? Will we invite them to a meeting? Do we have to pay them for their time? So, so, to me, the resources are definitely go to the CDC. Any public health organization that is doing evaluation is, I think, light years ahead of, and has a lot of insight, personally.
0: Yeah, and you talked about that evidence-based work and programming, and, you know, just the the investment that takes, but can you just say a little bit about kind of what that is, and sure, and, and even if folks, you know, a, a small organization can't, Try to tackle something like that. What can they learn from what other people have done?
1: Yeah, that's exactly right. So, evidence-based programs are ones that have gone through a fairly um, rigorous evaluation model to prove that their the structure of their programs and the design works, and that if you hold what what's called fidelity, if you if you hold to everything that they say has to that that has to be done, you too. Can achieve with your target population, the same results. So it costs lots of money. And one, one of the difficulties around the term evidence-based programs is that it excludes anything that's not been evaluated already with in this very formal type of evaluation. And, um, it's difficult. I think there's systemic issues around that because it's only the programs that have the money to do evaluation that get noted as an evidence-based practice. But there are other practices that work well. There are promising practices. There's there are lots of things that work. So I don't want to be political. <laughs> it's it's it, I think you could Google a little bit about the politics around evidence-based. Evaluation that you could see a bunch of the difficulties that exist around it. And it's, and it, I think personally, Wendy Wolf thinks that just because a program isn't an evidence based program does not mean it's not valuable and changing lives. It just means that it doesn't have the funding to become an evidence based program. So, so what we need to do, those of us who don't have the money to prove the degree to which our program has been successful for large groups of people, is to keep track of very good notes, to make sure we understand who the target population is and what they come to the table with before they interact with us, and that we can measure some way or demonstrate the change that has occurred between them before they came in and them after. And it might be anecdotal information, it might not be scientific, it might not be cutting-edge data, but it's interesting and profound and lives are being changed. And that has to be honored because I have a great story that I love. Um, This was in West Baltimore. A couple of years ago, we stumbled across a gentleman who was, it was in the summertime. He'd create a fire in his uh, fireplace and people could see it from the road. And he had hot cocoa and he had a welcome sign and he invited people to come sit around the fire and have a cup of cocoa and chat. And they would connect and they would um, and, and exchange information and help each other and get each other services. Is that an evidence-based program? No. Was it making a difference? You can you bet your butt it was. People were connected. People were getting resources. People had friends. They weren't alone. Those are all good things.
0: Yeah, and even if you don't go to the step of uh, implementing measurement, um processes, just the fact that you've had a conversation to kind of unlock unlock those assumptions, i think can bring about shifts in the program in the staff in the board uh around the understanding of what you're trying to achieve just that process i think can can have impact and can be valuable
1: yes and and the my last my last plea is to carve out time at the be- before the program begins so that we once people walk through the door, we've lost an opportunity for measurement, so we want to understand we want to really create some thoughtful time to understand what is it that we want to collect along the way and i want to tell you easier said than done. I myself have been you know have been uh have been in the middle of a program and been like, "Oh, we haven't done our evaluation indicators yet and so the idea is that we can never go back. People can't go unlearn something. So we need to know if we want to capture the degree to which people have changed, we need to know where they come in at. And then we can say, and and really, even if it's not this scientific evidence-based program, that change in a person's life is huge and storytelling is enormous. And right now I'm, I'm leaving a, a fairly large project and I, every time so today, just today, one of the participants in this big cohort that we're leading wrote me a note and said, I'm so excited. I feel great. I'm getting huge results with my consultant. I see that we're going to be in a better place in, at the end of this, which is in a two years. And I, I saved that. I was like, I'm going to need this at some point. It's not scientific, but I can go back to it in two years. I can go back to that and go, this is where he was. And, and actually, I wrote back, can you get, be more specific so I can go, oh, this guy was at, didn't have this, 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 and this. Now look at him.
0: Yeah, and that, I think that point of um, helping, figuring out a way to capture some of that, essentially that baseline of where folks yeah. are starting from, um, you know, you're always wanting to develop a program that meets people where they are, so then yeah. also documenting that kind of starting point where they are is key to be able yeah. to then see the difference.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And report it. And tell <laughs> stories. Stories do, don't, stories do a lot. Storytelling is amazing.
0: Right. It doesn't have to be, it doesn't all have to be numbers as uh, plenty of, you know, from a qualitative point of view that, that yes, very valuable. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. yes, we certainly, we got geeky on, on program yeah. evaluation, but I mean, it's so important. And uh, I think, you know, and I do think that, uh, try to de- demystify it a little bit because, you know, for the majority of nonprofits, smaller organizations, small budgets, and, and yet they're being you know hard to get started in that realm and hard to know, you know, they're dealing with so many different things and juggling a lot of different things to, to kind of build that in as well seems hard. But the benefit, I mean, what would you say? Uh, so for those smaller organizations, kind of, why is it worth spending the
1: time to do it? well to 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 plan out an evaluation strategy
0: yeah, to try to try to try to incorporate yeah. evaluate you know a little more just a little more maybe just a evaluation little more. Into, your, into your
1: um yeah just a more. little more i think it's important yeah i first of all i think it will be re- relieving because we are peppered or pummeled with the question of what's your pro- how's your program doing what's the results what's the impact What's the outcomes? And so and that makes everybody so nervous. So the more thoughtful we can be to really ahead of time to think about how will we know we've succeeded or the degree to which we've succeeded, that'll help reduce our stress. Because when we're asked that question, we'll go, well, here's how, here's how, you know, these are the great, this happened to me just this week. I had to write a report to a funder and I was like, oh, well, I have that all written because I've been collecting this data all along. Just put it in this file, put it in the file. And then when it times to write the report, there it is. So I think anything we can do to, to collect, to, I don't want to say the word prove because I don't like that, but to demonstrate how we are making a difference, whether it's in, in, immediate or short term, or it has potential for long term, any any way we can demonstrate that it will build our confidence and it will support us and it will help our sustainability. Excellent. We'll be back after this quick break. Mission Impact is sponsored
0: by Grace Social Sector Consulting. Grace Social Sector Consulting helps nonprofits and associations become more strategic and innovative for greater mission impact. Download free resources on strategic planning, program portfolio review, design thinking and more at gracesocialsector.com slash resources. We're back on Mission Impact. Well, at the end of each episode, I I ask a random, somewhat random uh, icebreaker question. So um, if you could have any fictional character as your friend, who would you choose and why?
1: All right, wait a second. Any fictional character as my friend? oh dear hold on i gotta scan through my shows and stuff (laughs) let's see fictional character i really like lisa simpson from the simpsons i love her desire for good i like lisa's musical talent i like that she doesn't give up on her on her hope and her commitment to what's right and just in the world so I really like Lisa Simpson. So off the cuff, not having known that question, I think that would be one of my choices. And I'm sure there's better ones, but that's the one right now.
0: Well, from how you describe Lisa, it sounds like she'd, she'd be a good addition to the nonprofit sector. So.
1: <laughs> Lisa Simpson would be a great CEO and a great activist. All right,
0: all right. So what are you excited about? Um, what's, what's kind of coming up next for you or emerging in the work that you're doing?
1: That's great. Um, Good question. I am really excited that, um, so my role at Maryland Nonprofits that, that maybe people don't know because they see me in the consulting role is that I, my title is Director of Strategic Engagement, and my job is to, we restructured a couple years ago, so the consulting department is in my, the consulting group is in my department, so I am still, I'm actively involved, but I'm excited. My role of strategic engagement is to build relationships and bring and dot connect, which I love to do. So what I'm excited about this year, I have three priorities. My three priorities are um, Carmen Marshall, our director of consulting, runs a beautiful racial equity program. And Carmen is the one of the most lovely human beings I've ever met and I am looking forward to helping her to download all of her thoughts and get that kind of developed and put into a plan so that we can execute. So I'm really excited about that. I'm super excited about our legal consulting program. So Patty Morton has been doing legal consulting for Maryland nonprofits. We have she's our general counsel. And up until um, she's also on my team and up until two years ago, most of the work Patty did was a lot of startup work and she does mergers and other great stuff. But what we have seen over the years is people really love Patty. She's amazing. And they like, and they need that help. So I would like to build Patty's legal consulting program. So that's something else we're going to do. And then finally. The claim to fame for me is our Standards for Excellence Institute. And so that's my third priority to help more folks understand the standards and understand why being a licensed, uh, an accredited organization, it could be a good choice for them and how to utilize the standards. So those are the my three strategic engagement focus areas, and I'm super excited about them.
0: That's awesome, and I love that you've got three because as a person who helps groups with strategic planning or your personal planning, three <laughs> is the magic number. That's just enough. <laughs> That's just not not uh, too few, not too many, um, yeah. to really have focus. So good. Well, thank you so much. It's um, great having you on, and and we'll we'll put links in to how how people can get in touch with you um, and learn more and about the the things that you you're talking about. So it's great. I appreciated the conversation and the chance to geek out with you on uh, evaluation.
1: That's so great. Thanks for having
0: me, Carol. This was a treat. I have found that just the process of putting together a theory of change or a logic model or an impact map, whatever you want to call it, can help a, a staff and board get clearer about what they're trying to achieve and to uncover and question the assumptions that are embedded in their approach. When I hear about staff people who have to write a theory of change or design one for a grant proposal in isolation, I really find that it's a missed opportunity for the organization that one person has to spend time thinking about this, but it's not shared and understood more broadly. I recently worked with an organization that had an amazing program with incredible outcomes working with young people. The program staff have had a well-thought-out impact map and were doing an awesome job of collecting the appropriate data to demonstrate the program's outcomes. But until we had a meeting to create an impact map with a wider group of staff and board members, though they'd already done the work with the funder in mind, their colleagues and board members did not have the full understanding of the program's scope and impact. By outlining the impact map together. They shifted the larger group into champions in a significant way. What success has your organization had with evaluating and demonstrating its impact? Thank you for listening to this episode. You can find the links and resources mentioned during the show in the show notes at mission impact podcast.com slash show notes. That's mission impact podcast, all one word.com slash show notes. If you enjoyed it, please share it with a colleague or a friend. We really appreciate you helping us get the word out.